Last several weeks we've been looking at some parables that Jesus spoke out of chapter 13 of the book of Matthew. And although we've completed looking at Jesus' kingdom parables, uh, we still will come across many more parables throughout our time in Matthew. And so uh, we'll look forward to getting in those. Uh, Again, I enjoyed uh, our time the last few weeks uh, trying to decipher uh, these parables and what the Lord was trying to say to us and uh, just look forward to getting into them again. Again, uh, but for our time this morning, we're going to finish up uh, chapter 13 of the book of Matthew, uh, and then uh, we're going to jump into chapter 14 as we look at various types of responses from people that encountered two uh, of God's most notable messengers. Uh, Jesus Christ, a messenger of God, and indeed God himself, and John the Baptist, the one that Jesus said that there was none greater born of a woman. And so uh, two very great and godly men, and we get to look at them and how people uh, responded to their message and to their ministry. At the end of chapter 13, we're going to note the response that Jesus received from those within his hometown. And then in chapter 14, we'll look at how John the Baptist, a bold messenger of God, uh, was treated by Herod and those from the royal family. Okay? As we note the different responses and attitudes of the people within our text, I believe that you'll agree that we're going to see uh, that these responses and attitudes are still very prevalent today. And so uh, let's go ahead and jump into this morning's text. I would like to invite you to stand as we read God's Word, just in honor of God's Word. Um, Maybe it's the battery. I'm not sure. Sorry. All right. Let's read Matthew chapter 13, beginning in verse 53. Matthew 13, verse 53. Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished these parables that he departed from there. And when he had come to his own country, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? And his sisters, are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? So they were offended at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own country and in his own house. Now he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for uh, this morning, and we thank you for your word that we can spend time in it and just glean from it and learn from it. And Lord, uh, that you use it uh, to just mold and shape us, Uh, Lord, to... Uh, cut away things that are not of you. We thank you that your word's described as a, uh, a double-edged sword, Lord, that can cut and, uh, through the, the thickest of uh, marrow and, and just get right into our heart. And so, Lord, we pray that you would do some heart surgery upon us this morning, that you would allow your word to, to delicately cut away things that maybe not, uh, are on, not honoring of you, Father, I pray that uh, we would come away just having spent time with you and been blessed by uh, your word. And so, Father, we do uh, pray for your blessings uh, upon our time of study. Father, I also just want to pray, as uh, was shared this morning, we want to pray for those who are doing missions uh, work out and about in this uh, world. Lord, we thank you that you have us here in this place at this time for such a season as this in Japan. Uh, And Lord, we know that Japan needs your gospel message. Lord, I want to pray specifically for Steve and Anna uh, there that are doing uh, ministry in Guatemala. And they just, uh, their congregation has suffered a loss this last week from uh, persecution. And so, Father, we pray that you would be with them, that you would strengthen them. Lord, I even want to pray for uh, my senior pastor, Pastor Rick Barnett, and uh, the team that he's with there in uh, Rwanda and Uganda this next week. And so I pray your blessings and provision would be upon them. Lord, we pray that we would be used 
as tools in your hands to spread your gospel message and to spread the love of your son, Jesus Christ, through a lost and dying world. Lord, lead and guide us and empower us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You guys may have a seat. Me now? Can you hear me now? All right. <laughs> Back into our text. <laughs> Jesus, after finishing the parables, he spoke with the disciples in the house, uh, departed, and headed to his hometown of Nazareth. Uh, Some believe this to be Jesus' second visit into Nazareth, while others claim that he only visited there once. Uh, Because Matthew doesn't necessarily always stick to a firm timeline in his writings, it's difficult to say absolutely one way or the other, but I think uh, we can look at the different writings and decipher some things. Uh, We do know that none of the Gospel writers record for us two separate visits to Nazareth. Luke records a visit to Nazareth in chapter 4 of his gospel account where Jesus reads from the scroll of Isaiah. You may be familiar with that portion of scripture where he reads from the scroll of Isaiah and and it talks about the ministry of the spirit of the Lord is upon him to, to come and to preach and to teach and to heal and do these things. And he rolls it up after saying, he says, Today, this scripture is fulfilled before you. You guys may recall that portion of scripture. Uh, According to Luke, uh, the historian, this occurred very early on in his ministry in the region of Galilee. Okay, Uh, Mark 6 records for us a visit to Nazareth that is placed significantly later in the timeline uh, of Jesus' ministry in Galilee. And Matthew's one and only account, the one that we read of just now, uh, of Jesus Jesus visiting Nazareth. Let me try that over. Of Jesus visiting Nazareth is uh, very similar to that of Mark's gospel. If you look at Mark's gospel and compare it to Matthew's gospel, they line up and seem to fit chronologically together as well. So each of the visits to Nazareth uh, recorded by the gospel writers tells us that he went to the synagogue to teach. Okay? Uh, but the details after that, they don't necessarily all line up. Okay? And so let's look at some of these things. In Luke's account, we're told that uh, where he taught from, we remember it was Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2, He taught from there. And how the crowd, we're told of how the crowd responded. If you recall that portion of scripture, the crowd responded with wrath uh, after hearing him speak about how Israel didn't accept prophets from their own country. Uh, In fact, they ended up thrusting him out of the city and trying to throw him off a cliff at the edge of town. And he was able to escape uh, and make his way through the crowd uh, as the mob type mentality was around him. In Mark's account, we're told that Jesus brought with him his disciples. And this is interesting to note because Luke's account from chapter 4 is before he called his first disciples in Luke chapter 5. Okay? And so in Mark and Matthew's account, there's also an emphasis upon the great works that Jesus had done and a question of, questioning of where he got his ability to perform such deeds. And so if this is true, if if the visits mentioned in Mark and Matthew were the same as the visit in Luke, it wouldn't make sense for them to cite the many great works that Jesus had done since Luke places Jesus' first 
visit to Nazareth very early on in his ministry. He hadn't done a whole lot of miracles and, and done a whole lot of signs. And so Matthew and Mark's account that they emphasize how he was able to do the great many works seems to indicate that it may have been a second visit. And so uh, for these reasons, I do think it's safe to say that Luke's account is a separate earlier account from what we read in Mark and Matthew. And, and I bring this to, to point, point out uh, something I think it's important. And that's, if, if this is so, then this is uh, most likely Jesus' second attempt to reach out to the people from his hometown of Nazareth. Uh, under this understanding, we see really the gracious heart of Jesus Christ and his long suffering. Even though they had previously rejected him, even though beforehand they wanted to run him out of town and, and throw him off a hillside, okay, he was willing to come back. And I think it shows the grace of our Heavenly Father and the grace of Christ. You know, I'm sure am glad that God did, didn't give up on me after the first time I rejected Him because it took a couple different people led by the Spirit to come and share that message with me. And the first person, I, I, the first person to really share it was the, this person on the corner giving me the, the turn or burn, you're going to hell kind of message. And I was like forget this guy, he doesn't know what he's talking about. And, you know, I was pretty mad, and other people as well. Uh, it, it took a couple different people that the Lord brought in my life before, before the Lord uh, became, before I surrendered my life to the Lord. And, and so I'm glad that He didn't give up on me after the first attempt. And we see, you know, that uh, you and I, we may have family or friends that have rejected God's message of love and grace. And I want to encourage you, don't give up on them either. Continue to allow the Spirit of God to reach out to them through you. Christ didn't give up on His hometown people, and we shouldn't either. We shouldn't give up on those who are close to us, those who uh, we love that have at one time rejected that gospel message. We want to continue to reach out to them. We see Christ, even after being rejected, still came back to his hometown of Nazareth and to give them another opportunity to hear his message. Well, as was his custom, Jesus, he went to the synagogue to teach. You know, of all the things written about Jesus and and what he did, I think one of the things that maybe is disregarded or, or maybe not made to be a big deal is that he taught in the synagogues. I think we pay close attention to the miracles, and I believe that's understandable. After all, they're, they're miracles, right? They're, they're supernatural things, and so we, we think, wow, that's incredible. Um, but, but don't lose sight of, of one of the most important and fundamental practices that Jesus did. He came to teach. Okay? He came as a teacher of God's Word, to proclaim God's Word. You know, the teaching and explaining of the scriptures was something Jesus did in nearly every city that he went to. That would be one of the first things he would do. He'd go to enter into a city and he would go to the synagogue and he would teach the word of God. It was important to Jesus and, and it, that's why it's important to us here today. Okay, here at Calvary Chapel, uh, Iwakuni, we're, we place a strong emphasis upon the teaching of God's word. Jesus set for us a precedent in the cities that he visited, often, if not always, going to the synagogues and teaching the scriptures. And so we place a strong emphasis upon teaching God's word. And and I know that I'm not Jesus and it's not as exciting, but I hope that you guys find that there's still joy in coming and going just systematically and simply through the word of God and expounding upon it, teaching it, making it a priority in our worship here. Well, after listening to Jesus' teaching, we're told that the people, they were astonished. Hey, that word astonished means to strike out or to expel by a blow or to drive out or away. And within the New Testament usage, it means to strike with astonishment, to be amazed. Uh, And we might say today that they they nearly fell out of their chair. Or, you know, uh, we say some people, okay, now, well... A lot of people say, knock your socks off, right? Okay, now we say, knock your flip-flops off, because nobody wears socks. Okay? Knock your socks off, that kind of uh, idea, just uh, blown away, floored with um, amazement these people were. 
And, and we might uh, look at this and we want to note, what was it that stood out to them? What w- was it that amazed them so much? They wondered where Jesus got two things. One was his wisdom, and the second thing was his mighty works. They were amazed at those two things, his wisdom and his mighty works. And not necessarily just those, but where he got them. Where did he get them? You know, normally one may be able to obtain wisdom through uh, means of higher education or specialized training. It would be possible, therefore, to feasibly explain a means in which Jesus obtained this great wisdom. Maybe he went to school, or maybe he had special training. But there was a problem with this idea for the people there in Nazareth. The the people all knew about Jesus, and they knew about his upbringing. They knew that he was the, the mere son of a carpenter. They knew that his mom and his brothers, they knew of the sisters that were amongst them. And they knew that he didn't have any opportunities for formalized training or or higher education. He came from a very common family. And so they were at a loss as to how he could have gained such great wisdom. And, And what about the mighty works? There wasn't anywhere one could go to learn how to do the things Jesus did. That that word, mighty works, used in this context, it speaks of miraculous power, divine power. This kind of power only came from the Spirit of God. And so the people were left with only one reasonable explanation, that the wisdom and mighty works came from God, but they were not willing to receive this explanation. They would not receive that as a plausible answer. Verse 57 says that the people were offended at what Jesus was saying. And and I looked up that word offended. And in the Greek, this word offended in the Greek is skandalizo. Skandalizo. Does that that word sound like anything you've ever heard before? It's where we get our English word scandalize. And so the people of Nazareth, they felt like they were being tricked. They, they, that this was some sort of scandal that Jesus was a part of. That Jesus was some sort of trickster and, and he was doing something immoral and, and, and wrong. That's what it means when he says they were offended. They thought, he's pulling a quick one on us, this Jesus. He's, this is scandalous what he's doing. And that was the only explanation that they could come up with because they would not accept the explanation that Jesus was empowered by God. And so their only explanation for what they witnessed was that Jesus, that he was some sort of of charlatan or or con artist, uh, that he was there trying to pull a quick one on them by tricks and and deception. That was their assessment. How did Jesus respond? Let's look at verse 57. Uh, Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own country and in his own house. Now he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Jesus explained how a, a prophet is honored in all places except for his own country and his own house. Why is this so? Why was Jesus not honored as a prophet of the Lord, as being sent and empowered by God? Because we know that's what it was. Remember, as, as the Spirit came upon him at the uh, baptism and, and give it, gave him the power, we've talked a lot about that as we look through Matthew 12 and Matthew 13, that Jesus proved that he was empowered by God. Why was it that they could not believe this? It's because Jesus was nothing more to them than the son of a carpenter. That the son of Mary, whose brothers and sisters were brought up amongst them and and were nothing great. They could not believe Jesus was extraordinary because they first viewed him as ordinary. Matthew Henry writes in his commentary an explanation for their rejection by simply stating the well-known phrase, familiarity breeds contempt. Familiarity breeds contempt. The people of Nazareth, they were familiar with Jesus. They probably saw him growing up in the area, playing with his brothers and sisters, and going to work as a carpenter with his father. 
They were very familiar with him. And what they did know of him was that he wasn't anything special. He was just like everyone else. And the thought of him being chosen to be the benefactor of God's divine powers was, was absurd to them. Because of their unbelief, Jesus did not do many mighty works in his hometown of Nazareth. You know, it's interestingly, if you read Mark's account, as I said, Matthew and Mark's account, they parallel each other very nicely. If you look at Mark's account, it says that he could do no mighty works there in Mark chapter 6, verse 5. That this idea it was not necessarily that he just chose not to, but that it, the ability was hindered in some way. Uh, Mark makes it seem that way, that is limited by their unbelief. And, and I believe that this is still true today. Again, Matthew Henry, he stated in his commentary, Unbelief is the great obstruction to Christ's favors. Christ is God, and He is able to do all things, but He will limit His works based upon our belief. Even, Even the great work of the gospel... The gospel message, as we read in Romans 1.16, it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. And we see there's this power of God connected to the belief of people. Okay? Our salvation is by God's grace, yet it's received through faith. Ephesians 2.8 tells us that. And, so, and when we see God work, He does the work, but He operates within our faith and within our beliefs. Sometimes we want God to to work a miracle, but we lack the true faith to believe that He is able and desiring. You know, and I'm not not trying to advocate for unhealthy practices that some proclaim and teach in in churches today. Uh, The idea of, you know, name it and claim it or blab it and grab it, that's unhealthy, okay? That's not what I'm trying to advocate here. uh, Nor do I want to persuade people to to think that God does not work solely because of our lack of faith, okay? And that if some people will say that if you just had enough faith to believe in anything, you can have it all, whatever you want. I'm not saying that either. What I am saying is simply this that we need to be mindful of our responsibility to believe in faith when it comes to God doing a special work in our life. And the thing is, it doesn't take a lot. Christ said, it, it, it just, if you have faith like a, a mustard seed, we talked about a mustard seed in the parable of mustard seed, little tiny. Okay? Do we have faith to believe God can do great things in our life? If we don't, we can hinder Him. We see that our unbelief hindered Christ's ministry in his hometown, or excuse me, their unbelief hindered Christ in the hometown, his hometown of Nazareth. As I look over this portion of chapter 13, I believe there's an attitude that was present amongst these people that was in opposition to what God was wanting to do in and through them. And, and I see here the attitude that some have that think God does not work through the ordinary and common. You know, this attitude goes against Scripture. Okay? 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 through 29. I'm going to read it to you. 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 29. It talks about who God chooses to use. He says, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen, and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in His presence." God purposefully chose the common and the ordinary, the base, the weak, those that were not set apart instead of those that were. God isn't limited to using only the spiritual heavyweights or the high and mighty. 
He likes to use the common everyday folks that would have enough faith to say, Use me, God. You know, here's the beautiful thing about the Lord. He uses the ordinary to do the extraordinary. Sometimes we, we get that backwards. And we think, God, you've got to be extraordinary to be used by God. He uses the ordinary okay, to do the extraordinary. Some today look at you and, and I and the people within the church that God uses and their attitudes like, oh, you're not so special. Or, or, you know, what have you got that I don't have? Or what makes you better than me? And the answer is nothing. <laughs> We're not more special. We're not better. The only thing that we have that they don't have is a relationship with a very special God. And it, and it doesn't make us better, or it doesn't make us special, or, or more loved. It makes us forgiven, and it makes us usable. So I want to encourage you all to not let that lie, or this thought that the people of Nazareth had about Jesus. Oh, he's just common. He's just, he's just a normal person. He grew up right amongst us. He can't be doing something great like this. God uses... The common uses the ordinary, uses people like you and me who are who have enough faith to say, Okay, God, use me. I don't have much to offer, but use me. And I think that the Lord would encourage us with that reminder this morning. Let's continue looking into chapter fourteen. Chapter 14, verse 1 says, At that time Herod the Tetrarch heard the report about Jesus and said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He's risen from the dead, and therefore these powers are at work in him. Here we are introduced to a ruler by the name of Herod the Tetrarch. There are a couple different people that are referred to as Herod throughout the Gospels uh, and the book of Acts. And so I want to take just a few minutes to explain the different Herods so that we're all on the same page. This is the first mention of this particular Herod. But it's not the first mention of Herod in the book of Matthew. If you guys recall that at the birth of Christ in Matthew chapter 2, there was a Herod that was ruling as a king over the land of Judea. That Herod was Herod the Great. He was a crazy man that was ruthless and thought nothing of slaying his own family and anyone else that dared challenge his authority. History tells us that he killed a number of his children and even some of his wives in fear that they were trying to usurp his authority. He was the one that ordered all the children aged two and under to be put to death from the town of Bethlehem because he heard of the message of the the king of the Jews that was born in Bethlehem. After that, uh, he soon died and he divided his kingdom amongst three of his sons. The Herod that we read of here in chapter 14 of Matthew is Herod Antipas. Okay, or, as it mentions here, Herod the Tetrarch. Okay? Herod uh, Antipas was one of the sons of Herod the Great. Okay? He's referred to as a Tetrarch because he ruled over a quarter of his father's former kingdom. Uh, uh, King Herod's kingdom was divided into fourths. He ruled over one of the fourths. Okay? Herod Antipas was placed in charge of reigning in the region of Galilee. And so as Jesus is ministering within Galilee, we hear a lot of about Herod the Tetrarch. Okay? The third Herod mentioned in Scripture is Herod Agrippa I. Okay? And he's mentioned in Acts chapter 12. He was responsible for imprisoning Peter and killing James. He was the grandson of Herod the Great. And he was the son of Aristobulus one of the kings one of Herod the Great's sons that wasn't given a tetrarch to, to rule over. Uh, and so his son uh, ruled after that. Uh, the final Herod spoken of in Scripture is mentioned in Acts chapter 25 and 26. This is Herod Agrippa II. He was obviously the son of Herod Agrippa I. And he is um, uh, he's the one that... Uh, the king that listened to Paul 
at the request of Festus at the end of uh, the book of Acts, Paul uh, appeals to Caesar. And so Festus holds on to Paul and is like, what am I going to do with this guy? And Herod Agrippa II and his wife Bernice, they come and they're visiting Jerusalem. And Festus says, hey, why don't you listen to this guy? I'm going to send him up to Caesar, but why don't you hear this guy out? That's Herod Agrippa II. So four different Herods mentioned in Scripture. Here we have Herod the Tetrarch. Okay? the son of Herod the Great. After hearing of the report of Jesus, Herod Antipas, or Herod the Tetrarch, believed that Jesus was John the Baptist risen from the grave. Most people believed that Herod Antipas was a bit preoccupied with thoughts of John the Baptist based upon what he had done to him. In these next verses, we're going to have uh, explained to us what did happen to John the Baptist as Matthew recounts for us something that had happened in the past between John the Baptist and Herod Antipas. But before we look at that, I wanted to note something that I found to be very interesting. When Herod heard about all that Jesus was doing, presumably the the preaching, the teaching, the great works, the mighty works, all that was going on, he assumed that it was John the Baptist come back to life. Now, I don't highlight this to bring up the many flaws in Herod's belief system that people come back to life in other forms and whatnot. We're not... You know, the reincarnation, that kind of stuff is uh, obviously something that we don't believe in. But I do want to point out this, okay? Is that John's work and ministry was so closely related to that of Jesus's that it caused Herod to believe that they could be one and the same man. What an incredible testimony of John the Baptist. His ministry was so much like that of Jesus that Herod actually thought Jesus could be John the Baptist come back to life. What if that were said about you? Or or maybe a better question would be, could that be said about you? If Jesus showed up and started ministering in your community, whether that be on base or out in town, your workplace, whatever it may be, would people hear about what was happening and think that it was actually you and not Jesus? If your neighbor heard about some guy talking about God and doing all sorts of works in the name of the Lord, would they think it was you? Would they say, oh, I know that guy. That's always talking about God and, and doing things for God. That's Sidney Martin. Yeah, I know about that guy. Or, or that's Walter Chan. Yeah, that guy's always talking about the Lord and, and doing things for the Lord. Okay? He, what an incredible testimony to be able to have a testimony like that. That we would be so much like Christ that people would actually think that we are one and the same. That's the kind of testimony. That's the kind of life John the Baptist lived. He was fully committed to God and lived a life that mirrored Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, speaks of how you and I, how we're being transformed into the image of Christ. And Romans 8 Verse 29, it tells us that we are predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. You know, transformed speaks of the ongoing work of being molded and shaped into the image of Christ. While conformed, it speaks of that finished product, that we were there, we've done it, we're complete. And as we note the likeness of John the Baptist to Jesus, I'm not saying that people should think that we're God, that people should think, oh, you're Jesus? No. But I am saying is that our our life ought to look something like that of Christ as we are continually being transformed. That that as as we walk with the Lord, our life should look more and more like that of Christ. We're not yet conformed into His image completely just yet. Okay? God is, is still working on us. And so don't feel like, no, people don't think I'm Jesus, that's for sure. That's okay. Well, it's okay that you're not there yet. But we have to 
allow the Spirit and allow God to be doing that transforming work in our life, that we would be becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. That maybe one day at the end of, you know, when our life is drawing to a a near and, and God's making those final touches on us, that people would look at us and say, and see Christ. That's what Jesus, or John the Baptist, that's what Herod noticed in John the Baptist. That, that, man, I'm hearing about all these things this guy's Jesus is doing. That's what John the Baptist did. What a great and wonderful testimony he had. Let's read about what happened between John and Herod as we continue here. Verse 3, it says, For Herod had laid hold of John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because John had said to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. And although he wanted to put him to death, he feared the multitude because they counted him as a prophet. Herod has placed John in prison. Because Herod's wife, Herodias, didn't like what John the Baptist was saying about their marriage. What would, uh, why would John speak out against their marriage? Okay. The Bible doesn't give us all the details. It does tell us, uh, basically. But history does give us a little bit more details in regards to what happened with these guys. Herod Antipas was first married to the daughter of King Aretas IV. But he divorced her and sent her home because he wanted to marry his niece, Herodias. Okay. Herodias, however, was already married as well. Okay. She was married to her uncle, Herod's brother, Philip. Okay. It's, it's really weird. Okay. Just follow with me though. Okay. Herod convinced Herodias to leave her husband and his brother and to be joined together with him in marriage. And John the Baptist spoke out against this and against their marriage because of what Leviticus 18.16 says in Leviticus 20.21. Leviticus 18.16 says, You shall not uncover the nakedness of your brother's wife. It is your brother's nakedness. And Leviticus 20, verse 21 says, If a man takes his brother's wife, it is an unclean thing. He has uncovered his brother's nakedness. They shall be childless. And interestingly enough, history tells us that Herod and Herodias did not have any children together. It was wrong for Herod to marry his brother's wife. And John the Baptist wasn't afraid to speak up and to say so. Because John the Baptist spoke out against Herod and Herodias' marriage, it enraged Herodias. And because it upset his new wife so much, Herod had John bound and put in prison. Mark's account gives to us some details that Matthew's account doesn't. And I'd like to quickly look at them uh, because I think it helps to paint a fuller, more accurate picture. And so if you want to turn to Matthew 6... Uh, you will, or excuse me, Mark 6. Uh, I'm going to read Mark chapter 6, verses 17 through 20. And I'm actually going to read it from the ESV because I like how it reads a little bit better in the ESV. So some of you guys will be, finally, he's reading from the ESV. Uh, Mark chapter 6, verse 17. It says this, For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. From Mark's account, we see that it was really Herodias that wanted to kill John the Baptist. And Herod was the one that prevented this from happening. Herod recognized John the Baptist as a righteous and holy man, and he feared him. Herod liked to hear what John the Baptist had to say. And even though he didn't always understand he was, uh, saying, what he was saying, he gladly heard him. And so not only did Herod fear John the Baptist, 
But he also it tells us that he feared the multitude that counted John the Baptist as a prophet from God. And for these reasons, Herodias was not permitted to carry out her own desires to have John the Baptist killed. But something happened that changed things. Something happened that changed everything. Let's read verse 6 and 7. It says, But when Herod's birthday was celebrated, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod. Therefore he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. During a birthday party for Herod, the daughter of Herodias came and danced before Herod and his guest. History tells us that this daughter's name was Salome, and that she was the daughter of Herodias and Philip, Herodias' first husband and Herod's brother. This means that Salome was Herod's great-niece and stepdaughter at the same time. I know it's confusing, but hopefully you're tracking along. And this dance was, was not some innocent routine of a little girl. I saw uh, Millie's little dance on Facebook doing the little cute uh, Japanese dance. That's not the kind of dance that this was. Okay? This, uh, the language used implies that Salome was a, a young woman. She was a damsel. And, and many believe that the dance was provocative in nature. And, and the text tells us that Herod was pleased by Salome's uh, dance, and and therefore offered to her anything that she wanted. And Herod responded foolishly. You know, very simply, he he made a a, a rash oath to give whatever Salome wanted, and and we're going to see how this backfires on him in this next verse, verse 8. And so she, having been prompted by her mother, said, Give me John the Baptist's head here on a platter. I imagine that Herod would have never thought that such a request would come from his stepdaughter. It was a gross and and evil request, one put into her mind by her mother. Again, Mark's gospel tells us a little more details of what happened. If you look at Mark chapter 6, verse 24 and 25, it tells us, So she went out, and speaking of Salome, So she went out and said to her mother, What shall I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And immediately she came in with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. We see here that Salome was being used to do the dirty work of her mother. This whole scenario really is is sad in in many, many ways. This family is is all messed up. Uh, Nieces marrying uncles, Great nieces dancing provocatively before their stepfather and other men. And a mom using her daughter to have a righteous man beheaded and actually request that his head be served up on a platter. This is a picture of a very sick and very sad family. How did Herod respond? It tells us, verse 9, And the king was sorry. Nevertheless, because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him, he commanded it to be given to her. And so he sent and had John beheaded in prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. King Herod was sorry. He was grieved and sorrowful. That's what it means when he says he's sorry. Why was Herod so sorry? Again, Mark tells us that Herod feared John the Baptist as a righteous and holy man. Also, Herod feared the people. And he didn't want to have to do anything that would upset them and and cause them to, to make trouble for him. And even though he was sorry, it did not prevent him from following through with this appalling request. And the reason he did it was because of two things. One was because of the rash oath that he had stated. He spoke words he never should have said. And instead of swallowing his pride and denying the request, he followed through with it. And the other reason given was because of the people that were before him. Herod didn't want to look bad in the sight of all the the dignitaries that were there at his birthday party. And so Herod followed through with the request and had John beheaded while he was in prison and had his head brought on a platter and given to Salome. Salome, in turn, brought it to her mother. 
What a sad and sick account of the killing of a very great man of God. John the Baptist lived his life for the Lord and ended up sacrificing that life in his service unto God. And as we look at the different people involved in this account, I'd like to point out some different attitudes in regards to relationships that we have with others. And, and I want to make application for today. And so we're going to look first off to, to Herod. You know, Herod's biggest problem was that he feared people instead of fearing God. Herod feared the multitude. Herod feared John the Baptist. Herod, presumably, I think it's safe to say, probably feared his wife. He feared the individuals that were at his party, but he didn't fear the Lord. Herod wanted to be a people pleaser. He wanted to make people happy. When he was with John the Baptist, he feared him and respected him as a man of God. But when he was with, uh, before his wife and with these other dignitaries, he, he feared them and he caved to the pressures of pleasing them. Herod pictures for us the type of person that has, has really one foot in the world and, and one foot in the church. They're doing this limbo balancing act. There are people today that try and live two separate lives. Their life with their Christian friends and their life with their worldly friends. They try to make both people groups happy. When they're with their Christian friends, they say and act one way. When they're with their other friends, they say and act another way. They want to make both groups happy. And they want to fit in with both of them. And eventually, what happens all the time is there will come a time when this person will not be able to keep both sides happy and will be forced to choose one over the other. Herod decided to keep his wife and party guest happy and chose them over the righteous and godly man of John the Baptist. And I think a point that we, I want to make here is that we should be God-fearers and not people-pleasers. We will never be able to keep everyone happy. We must focus on pleasing God and not man. Herod was all about making people happy, pleasing people and fearing what they thought of him. We can't live our lives that way. Let's look at Salome. Salome was a pawn in the hand of a very evil and cruel woman. She did what she was told to do regardless of whether it was right or wrong. Salome, I believe, pictures for us people that blindly follow those in positions of authority and power. Many today fall into the trap of following blindly the powers that be and are never bold enough to stand up for what is right. We need to be people of integrity and people of courage that do the right thing, whatever it may cost, no matter the cost. Out of fear of looking bad in front of the boss or, or letting a superior down, we're willing to sacrifice our convictions with the hopes of advancing our own cause. That's what happens when we find ourselves in that situation. We sacrifice our convictions thinking that, well, it'll get me in good favor with this person. And that's foolishness. The scriptures teach us that it's God who promotes. It's God who elevates one and puts down another. Psalms 75, verse 6 and 7 says, For exaltation comes neither from the east, nor from the west, nor from the south. But God is the judge. He puts down one and exalts another. We need to trust the Lord. And stop letting others lead us around blindly. With the thought or hope that it's going to advance your cause. That's foolish to, to live your life that way, and we shouldn't live our life that way. What about Herodias? Herodias is, is a real simple one, I think. Herodias was a woman that was willing to do whatever it took to silence those that spoke out against her. She despised John the Baptist for speaking out about her marriage with Herod, and she wanted him killed for it. She pictures for us those that are not only against the message of the gospel, but aggress those who aggressively seek to destroy it by any means. Unfortunately, there are people like that today. They don't want anything to do with the gospel, and they're going to attack it, and they're going to be aggressive 
towards it in any given opportunity. And, and we need to be aware of that. We need to be aware that there are those that would love nothing more than to see you fall. And they would t- take joy in seeing you fall. And to mar your testimony and your witness for Christ. And we need to be on our, God, on our guard against such attacks. We need to be aware of that. There are people out there that want to see you fall. and want to see the name of Christ dragged through the mud. And we need to be aware of that and not allow that to happen. Verse 12, it ends up our portion this morning. It just says, Then his disciples came and, and took away the body and buried it and went and told Jesus. Next week when we get into continuing chapter 14, we'll see how Jesus responded uh, to this news. But uh, for our time this morning, I just wanted to highlight just our different reactions, different reactions we can see. We see these attitudes and, and mentalities uh, of Herod and Herodias and Salome, and, and we need to be guarded against those types of attitudes. We saw the attitude of the people of Nazareth, how they, they believed that he, Jesus was just too common to be able to, to be God and to do these great things. And I want to encourage you and remind you, God, God loves to use the ordinary to do the extraordinary. And uh, I hope and pray you're blessed this time. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and, and thank you for this opportunity just to spend time in it and to go through it and to glean from it. Father, I pray that you would just encourage us and uh, maybe there was just some things that really, uh, hopefully everyone would be able to say there was something that was f- for you, uh, for us this morning, that each and every one of us would, would, have leave, would leave this place knowing that you've given to us a word. Maybe it's a, maybe it's a correction. Maybe it is a rebuke. Maybe it's an encouragement. I don't know what it is, but Lord, I pray that your word as it went forth, and I thank you for the promise of your word that does tell me that as your word goes forth, that it accomplishes that what it's set forth for. And so, Father, we just pray your word would do its work in our lives. Lord, thank you for this morning, and we pray that as we sing this last song, that we bless your heart. In Jesus' name.